Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 55, Colonel Al-Athia. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Serve FUD when we serve FUD. Perform a handbone solo when we perform a handbone solo. Spoilers, you won't have to perform a handbone solo. And today I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 20, Colonel Homer, which first aired on March 26, 1992, after another two-week gap. And I'm going to be talking about Iraq because on March the 25th, 1992, the day before Colonel Homer first aired, the International Atomic Energy Agency ordered Saddam Hussein to destroy the Al-Athia nuclear complex. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So this first aired on March 26, 1992. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one that day? Well, I fear we are in yet another epic number one era, as Stay is still there. But at number two, we have Finally by C.C. Peniston. A bit like I Love Your Smile a while back, I'm willing to bet you haven't thought about this one in years, but immediately have the chorus stuck in your head. Peniston originally came to people's notice doing backing vocals on Overweight Pooch's album Female Preacher, apparently. And let's face it, Those are all words. So this single was her debut, released at the age of 21, and it peaked at number two here, again, without one of the leviathans of the 90s chart above it, probably a solid number one for at least a week. It also got to number five in the Billboard Hot 100. She would never have a single that high in either chart again, although We Gotta Love Thang got to number six here. But the song remains a club classic and a camp classic, and lives on, if nothing else, through its inclusion in the 1994 film The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and the subsequent stage musical production. And that's it! Funnily enough, there's not as much to say about C.C. Peniston as there was about Guns N' Roses. Who'd have thunk (laughs) it? I know three seconds of that song. Finally, it's happening to me. After that, I've got no idea. It's just a complete blank. I'm going to be very frank with you. Those are the best three seconds of the song. (laughs) And I don't think you'd find many dissenting voices to that opinion. But you can find out when it goes live on the playlist on, um, yeah, why not Saturday? The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 14.8, which is 16.6 million households. It was the highest rated show on Fox and 22nd in total for the week. The production number was 8F19. And the credited writer is Matt Groening. We did discuss him before, but that was on the pilot. Don't listen to the pilot. And so that you don't listen to the pilot, here's a bit about Mr. Groening. After moving to Los Angeles in 1977 to become a writer, he had a number of what he described as lousy jobs and developed his own comic strip called Life in Hell, which he distributed through a record store he worked at, with it also later appearing in other publications. It was a surprise hit, and by the mid-80s, Groening had his own company, which distributed the comics and compilation books, such as Love is Hell and Work is Hell. Producer James L. Brooks was a fan of Life in Hell, and when he needed some animated pre- and post-advert bumpers for the Tracy Ullman show, 
he asked Groening to contribute. The ensuing pitch was The Simpsons in short form, and the rest is history. It is unusual to see him with a written-by credit on the show he created, though. And we won't see another until all the way off in Season 7, Episode 21, 22 short films about Springfield. Although basically everyone involved at that time has a writing credit on that one. And from there, the next one's the movie. So a rare Matt Groening credit here. The chalkboard gag is I will not conduct my own fire drills. And the couch gag is everyone falls into the sofa with their legs sticking up. But what actually happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to the cinema. Yes, it's off to Springfield Googleplex Theatre. That's Google the number, which is one followed by a hundred zeros, rather than Google the search engine, which just perked up on my phone when I said the word Google. (laughs) Parking is sparse, so Homer squeezes them into a compact-only space, a thing which I don't think exists over here. We then briefly see just seven of the films being shown on screens 22 to 28. Tom. I'm not going to ask you to name them as it's essentially a freeze frame gag, and I don't think that's fair. I'll tell everyone that they are I'll Fry Your Face 3, The Smell in Room 19, Space Mutant 6, Honey I Hit a School Bus, Look Who's Oinking, The Stockholm Affair, and Ernest versus the Pope. I haven't stopped to look at them before. That, that's great. I will have to ask you, Tom, sight unseen, which of those films would you go for on title alone? Oh, Ernest versus the Pope, definitely. Yeah, I, I think I think I'd have to go with you, um, which is why it's odd when Bart says he wants to see Ernest cuts the cheese. Um, mm. That isn't an option, mind you. There's there's a lot of screens that we didn't hear about. I suppose I, I did wonder whether they would have had trouble getting a small boy saying Ernest versus the Pope past the censors at that stage, but. There we go. Uh, Lisa fancies Honey, I Hit a School Bus, and Homer wants to see Look Who's Oinking. They decide to split into adults and children to partially settle their differences. And besides, Oinking is sold out. So the adults go for the Stockholm Affair, which Homer immediately regrets when he finds out it's a taut political thriller rather than softcore pornography. (laughs) His lack of decorum scandalises the audience, including choking on a cup full of ice being scared of an octopus, asking questions when he can't keep up, and, of course, revealing the ending. Marge, therefore, gives him a humiliating dressing down in front of everyone. And meanwhile, Bart drags Lisa to see Space Mutants, and she gets scared, and that's literally it for their bit. Homer is furious that he's been robbed of the certain quiet dignity he, for some reason, believes he had, and drives off in a huff, initially in search of a flaming Pete's steakhouse 75 miles away. Unfortunately, when he finally gets there, it's burned down. Then he drives past a fertilizer plant, the county dump and a sulfur mine, then 40 miles of open sewers to reach the Beer and Brawl, a redneck bar in Spittle County that's at least 115 miles away from his house, where amongst the fighting, he finds solace with a bottle of fud and the beguiling sounds of one Lurleen Lumpkin, the bar's waitress and aspiring singer. She fills in for yodeling Zeke, who is bottled before the band can even start playing. And Homer's mesmerised by her song, Your Wife Don't Understand You But I Do, which for some reason really seems to speak to him. He chats to her until dawn the next day, then with his feuding and the fussing forgotten, he returns home to Marge for some loving. However, he can't get Lurleen's song out of his head, 
affecting his work, but apparently enhancing his bowling. So he tracks Lurleen down at her trailer to get a copy of her record, but she's never recorded any of her tracks, three more of which she names. And Tom, can you also name them? I'm basting her turkey with my tears. Don't look up my dress unless you mean it. Oh, and one more, which I can't remember. It's I'm sick of your lying lips and false teeth. That's the one. So to be fair, you remembered the two funny ones. So that's, <laughs> that's kind of what counts. Homer demands to crack open her head and scoop out the songs. And off they go to one of those little recording booths that, again, I don't think you get in this country, but they're all over American films and TV of a certain period. Even better, the shop assistant has a contact at a country station in Weevil County and arranges for some airplay. It's a rousing success, breaking up a prison riot and a fight between Krusty and Mel, and even melting Moe's heart to the extent that he offers beer on the house for half an hour to an empty room, withdrawing the offer as soon as Barney appears. The only person who's on the fence is Marge, who's worried about Homer's fidelity, a problem that's exacerbated when Homer becomes Lurleen's manager. Sharp suit, bootlace tie, invested life savings and all. So it's off to Hicksville, USA recording studio where Marge first meets Lurleen, who Homer had said was overweight. But as Homer reminds her, it takes two to lie, one to lie, and one to listen. The ensuing session of Lurleen's new song, Bagged Me a Homer, is curtailed due to a strange grinding noise on the track, which turns out to be Marge's teeth. Lurleen's career starts taking off, but it's obvious to everyone except Homer that she's got an eye on him in a less platonic sense. It takes two plays of her newest song, Bunk With Me Tonight, for him to get the message. And when he does, he has to go and have a think before Lurleen's television debut. Marge and kids lay some serious guilting on him before he leaves for that. The TV show she's on is Yahoo, a show awash with stereotypes from the country and western sphere and sons of the soil, shall we say. This includes Yodeling Zeke, Butterball Jackson, Freddie Boy and Yuma, Cloris Mazel, Big Shirtless Ron, Orville and Hurley, Gappy May, Hip Diddle, Rudy, and the Yahoo Recovering Alcoholic Jug Band. And I think most of these go on to build Springfield Dam under the management of Cecil Terwilliger in a later episode. Mm-hmm. At the taping, Homer is approached by a representative of Rebel Yell Records, a division of Tokasagi Corporation, asking to buy Lurleen's contract. But they don't call him Colonel Homer because he's some dumbass army guy. However, it becomes clear that Lurleen isn't going to leave him be. And he finally realizes his marriage is in danger and walks out of the taping straight into a terrible negotiation with Rebel Yell Records that at least gets him out of his contract. He's back in bed with Marge by the time Lurleen performs her second song, a hastily penned number called Stand By Your Manager, that explains that Homer was a gentleman and that Marge is lucky to have him. The latter point being one that I would have to dispute based on 31 The Bit Seasons of Evidence. The end. What did you reckon to that one? Oh, it's a classic, isn't it? Lurleen Lumpkin is an amazing character and there's so many, there's so many great lines. Uh, and, and possibly my favourite piece of animation in the, in the history of The Simpsons when, when they're in the cinema and Homer has a mug full of ice. <laughs> he tips it into his mouth. You get that one frame of him just in total panic because his mouth is stuffed full of ice. He goes out of shot, spins it out on the floor and then pops back up as if nothing had happened. It's genius. 
Yeah, I've got to say this one was better than I remembered. Um, you sort of look at the the company it keeps in season three, and it it doesn't stand out for me amongst the uh, the other classics. But uh, yep, yeah, it's good. It's a solid episode, and we get a solid character debut in Lurleen Lumpkin. Unfortunately, it's a bit of a downward spiral for Lurleen, something Homer had apparently advised her not to go into. As we eventually find out in season 19, episode 16, Papa Don't Leech, in which Lurleen and Colonel Homer both return. And also the Dixie Chicks are in it because celebrities. We learn in that episode that she has run up a $12 million tax bill, lost her money to a string of ex-husbands, all of whom look like Homer, and is forced, to the surprise of no one because this is what always happens, to move in with the Simpsons, including working at Moe's to raise money. In that episode, she is reunited with her father, Royce Boss Hog Lumpkin, who winds up betraying her. It's not the best episode, really. Here and in season 19, Lurleen is voiced by Beverly D'Angelo, an actress and singer probably best known for her portrayal of Ellen Griswold in the National Lampoon's Vacation films. She seems to have had a fascinating career, including being an illustrator at Hanna-Barbera and a backing singer for Ronnie Hawkins. She's also appeared in just a huge amount of really varied stuff. She was asked to audition for The Simpsons based at least partly on her performance as Patsy Cline in the film Coal Miner's Daughter. But more about that in a minute. D'Angelo also wrote Your Wife Don't Understand You and I Bagged a Homer. So it's worth reflecting on how different this episode could have been if not for her casting. Lurleen does make one speaking appearance in the intervening time, which is season four, episode 12, Marge versus the Monorail. This is clearly set during her lost years, and she does seem the worse for wear. For that appearance, she sounds extra desiccated, as she is voiced by none other than Doris Grau. Also in season four, episode 22 this time, Krusty gets cancelled. We see her as the center square in the game show Springfield Squares. Although, given her troubles at the time, perhaps that episode was taped some way in advance. The character's look was created by character designer John Rice and was modelled partly on D'Angelo, as well as, and I quote, every kind of pretty girl cliche. Uh, I was reading that apparently they had trouble making um, attractive female Simpsons designs just because of the the overbite and the general sort of... um, garishness of the the usual Springfieldian design, but they feel like they knocked it out of the park with this one. <laughs> the character of Lurleen Lumpkin has a certain attractiveness to her, but some, sometimes she looks like a frog. I think that is an occupational hazard with that kind of design. Uh, <laughs> but yes, yes, agreed. It's also worth noting that in this episode, we get one of Homer's oft-quoted boyhood dreams. He says it's his boyhood dream to manage a beautiful country and western singer, but Marge reminds him that it was actually to eat the world's biggest hoagie, and that he did it at the county fair last year. Got some did you knows for you? Mm-hmm. The episode takes some cues from the 1980 film Coal Miner's Daughter, funnily enough, uh, which was a biopic of Loretta Lynn, starring Sissy Spacek in the title role, along with Tommy Lee Jones and, of course, Beverly D'Angelo. To help design the recording studio in the episode, the designers took a field trip to Sun Studio in Memphis, allegedly the birthplace of rock and roll, and an early haunt of Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash, amongst others. The appearance of the producer in that scene was modelled on John Boylan, who produced The Simpsons Sing the Blues. When Lenny decides to sing to his bowling ball for good luck, he sings There's a Kind of Hush, originally recorded by the new vaudeville band, also re-recorded by Gary and the Hornets, and brought to fame by Herman's Hermits. But I would imagine Lenny would have heard the Carpenter's version, 
released to great success in 1976. And my favourite, it's more of a, did you notice? A sign behind the bar at the beer and brawl simply says, no biting. (laughs) Indeed. Tom, do you have any memeable moments for us? I do. It's not absolutely crammed with memeable moments, this one. But I've gone for seven. So number one, we've already talked about. It's Homer in the cinema when he drops the ice in his mouth. But really, any line from that is great. Oh, an octopus! (laughs) Awesome. Number two is a Stone Cold classic. Hey you, let's fight. Them's fighting words. One of the things I love about this episode is it's all the redneck stuff. Spittle County, Weevilville. It's awesome. Even the reference to Deliverance with the kid playing the banjo when Homer's driving past him. It's great. Anyway, number three, a line which always had me laughing when I was when I was younger. Um, you're listening to KUDD. Don't touch that dial. You've got cud on it. Number four, we've already mentioned. Your boyhood dream was to be the world's biggest Hogan. You did it at the county fair last year, remember? Number five, I think we've already said as well. Marge, it takes two to lie, one to lie, and one to listen. And number six, probably my favourite piece of comic timing in the whole episode, uh, after Lorleen has sung Bunk With Me Tonight. Oh, that's hot. There isn't a man alive who wouldn't get turned on by that. Well, goodbye. <laughs> and number seven, one that I used recently, actually, as a as a template for a, for a political thing, which I won't bore you with. Marge on the phone to one of her sisters, can't remember which one, all our money's tied up with this woman. If she fails, we're broke. If she succeeds, I have no husband. I don't know what to root for. You don't. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I really like about this episode is just how redneck Lorleen's name is. Lurleen Lumpkin. It's like you're taking Jolene from the Dolly Parton song. In fact, I would have loved it if Marge had sung Lurleen, 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 Lurleen. That would have been great. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, uh, with that, let's uh, let's take you to um, Iraq again. Yes, yes, we're going back to Iraq because on March 25th, 1992, the day before Colonel Homer first aired, the International Atomic Energy Agency ordered Saddam Hussein to destroy the Al-Athia nuclear complex. So with this story, I'll be using it as an opportunity to talk about what happened immediately after the Gulf War. Because I feel that that period of history is often skipped over. It's like there was a war, Iraq lost it, stuff. So by that time, the Gulf War had been over for more than a year. In fact, I went over the events of the Gulf War in episode 23. Bart gets hit by the Gulf War. But what happened immediately after it? Well, the pretext of the Gulf War was Saddam Hussein's invasion and occupation of Kuwait, a small oil rich country directly south of Iraq. An international coalition led by the USA went in to drive the Iraqis out and succeeded with relative ease, I think it's fair to say. The war was an environmental disaster as retreating Iraqi forces set fire to Kuwaiti oil fields. As they retreated along Highway 80, they were bombed by Allied planes. The attack killed over a thousand Iraqis and it was dubbed the Highway of Death. However, plenty of Iraqis, including the core of the elite Republican Guard managed to escape. On March the 2nd, the UN passed Resolution 686, which laid out the conditions for a ceasefire, conditions that Iraq were obliged to accept. 
they were required to hand back all QAT property as quickly as possible, release any prisoners of war, and provide information on any booby traps they may have left. A month later, on April 3rd, 1991, the UN passed Resolution 687, with the intention of stripping Iraq of its chemical and biological weapons, its infamous weapons of mass destruction. To this end, the United Nations Special Commission, or UNSCOM, was set up to inspect the weapons. And one of the things I really like about UN resolutions is they're all numbered sequentially. So 686, 687, 688, it's all very nice and ordered. So while the UN were passing resolutions, Iraq itself was a tinderbox of unrest. It's no secret whatsoever that President George H.W. Bush wanted regime change in Iraq, and his hope was that the Iraqi people would themselves overthrow Saddam Hussein. While Operation Desert Storm was still ongoing, on February 15th, George Bush made a speech via Voice of America radio. In it, he said this. I won't do my George Bush impression. (laughs) That's a shame. So this is what he said on, on the radio. There is another way for the bloodshed to stop, and that is for the Iraqi military and the Iraqi people to take matters into their own hands and force Saddam Hussein, the dictator, to step aside and then comply with the United Nations resolutions and rejoin the family of peace-loving nations. Bush repeated his stance on March 1st, the day after Desert Storm drew to a close. During the combat, others made similar statements that would have been heard by Iraqis. On February 24th, A few days before the end of the war, Salah Omar al-Ali, a former high-ranking Ba'ath Party minister who resigned after the start of the Iran-Iraq war, went on Free Radio Iraq to deliver the following message. Rise to save the homeland from the clutches of dictatorship so that you can devote yourself to avoiding the dangers of continuation of the war and destruction. Honourable sons of the Tigris and Euphrates, all these decisive moments of your life And while facing the danger of death at hands of foreign forces, you have no option in order to survive and defend the homeland, but put an end to the dictator and his criminal gang. Following all that encouragement from the USA and others, what followed were various uprisings against Saddam Hussein. Now, they occurred according to the political geography of the country. And as a gross, gross oversimplification, the south of Iraq is populated by Shia Muslims, the north by Kurds, and the middle by Sunni Muslims. And the Sunni Muslims are in the minority. Saddam Hussein himself was a Sunni, uh, but they are in the minority. So at this point, Iraq has been humiliated on the international stage and the morale of the troops that survived the war would have been pretty low. One such soldier was a gunner on a T-72 tank. When he reached Basra, a city a short distance from Kuwait, he fired a shell at a giant portrait of Saddam Hussein while other soldiers cheered him on. This proved to be a spark for a very disorganised uprising against Saddam. Many of the returning army soldiers were Shia conscripts who had no particular loyalty to the Ba'athist regime. The rebellion was led by groups including the Islamic Dawah Party and the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq. After a gun battle against Saddam's forces, the rebels took control of the Imam Ali Mosque in Najaf, and the uprising subsequently spread to further cities in the south. Meanwhile, in the north, the insurgency there was much better organised. The Patriotic Union of Kurdistan and the Kurdistan Democratic Party rose up and the various Kurdish militia, including the famous Peshmerga, took control of the town of Rania on March 5th. 
They were joined by army defectors and captured almost every major city, taking Kirkuk on March the 20th. They also took control of the Directorate of General Security in Sulaymaniyah, and this was the regional HQ of Saddam's secret police. And a bloody revenge was taken, with over 900 people being killed, and tons of documents recovered that detailed Saddam's notorious Al-Anfal campaign, including the chemical attack on Halabja, which is one of the things that Saddam would end up hanging for. So at the height of the uprisings, the government lost control of 14 of Iraq's 18 provinces. However, they kept control of the capital Baghdad. From their base, the elite Republican Guard moved out with tanks and gunships and eventually took back control from the rebels in the north and south. Basically, the rebels were totally outgunned and didn't stand a chance against the weaponry of the regime. And controversially enough, the Iraqi forces were allowed to fly helicopters by the Americans because an Iraqi general appealed that, hey, all of our bridges are blown up. You want us to retreat? You want us to get stuff out? Well, then we're going to need helicopters. So America went, yep, all right, you can use helicopters. And they subsequently went on to use helicopter gunships to put down rebellions. Ugh. Who could have seen that coming? Mm. So on April 5th, the Iraqi government announced that they were in full control of the country and the rebellions were over. So they lasted at most a month. So as for the weapons inspections, the day after UNSCOM was created, it immediately set about its work. On April 4th, 1991, they alleged that Iraqi nuclear scientists had been ordered to hide nuclear secrets from them and formulate reasons why Iraq had a nuclear capability in the first place. It was a fairly straightforward thing to do, just say that it's for generating electricity. That's why you're messing around with fissionable material. Try to make a power plant in a country awash with oil. Yes. However, from then on, UNSCOM would deal with chemical and biological weapons, while the nuclear side of things would be addressed by the International Atomic Energy Agency, whose initials are not shortable either. A few days later, on April 8th, the first of the no-fly zones was established. It was set up north of the latitude of 36 degrees, and it had quite a cute name, Operation Provide Comfort. Oh, I could get behind that. (laughs) The intention of it was to stop Iraqi planes from flying so they couldn't bomb the Kurds. On the same day, the US ordered Iraq to stop all of their military operations against the Kurds. A bit late, if you ask me. So, weeks later, Iraq appeared to be complying with UN Resolution 687, albeit in a rather limited way. They handed over some chemical weapons, but denied that they had any biological weapons. On April the 15th, the International Atomic Energy Agency's Director General Hans Blix, who I'm sure we've all heard of, he made an appearance in the South Park film. No, not the South Park film, uh, Team America Well Police. Yes, yes, of course. Had yeah, I've, I was about to do the accent there, I'm not going to do the accent. <laughs> so anyway, Hans Blix appointed Professor Maurizio Zifferero to head up their inspection team. And on April 19th, UNSCOM got a leader, Carl Rolf Ekeus. He was a Swedish diplomat who had previous experience with the Conference on Disarmament based in Geneva. Under his leadership, UNSCOM began its first inspections in Iraq on June the 9th, 1991. Now, it wasn't a race, but they were not the first inspectors on the ground in Iraq following the Gulf War. 
that plum went to the IAEA, who began their inspections on May the 15th. With the weapons inspections getting underway, the UN passed two more resolutions against Iraq, 699 and 700. These stated that Iraq was responsible for paying the cost of the inspections and that an international arms embargo against Iraq would take effect. It's fair to say that in the early days, the inspectors did not have the easiest of times in Iraq. The inspectors were denied access to key sites, and there was even an instance where soldiers fired warning shots to prevent the inspectors from getting to a convoy of nuclear equipment. The first IAEA team landed in Baghdad on May 15, 1991, and they went to inspect the Tawaifa complex. They found that each building of the complex had suffered a direct hit, so everything was out of action. However, they also found that the site had been stripped of equipment, and they even suspected that debris had been moved to cover up various tracks. Over the summer, UNSCOM agreed the loan of a Lockheed U-2 spy plane in order to get aerial reconnaissance photos. That was pretty controversial because the Iraqis would later go on to say that, hey, they're spying on us. They've literally got a spy plane. They can't do that. On August the 2nd, Iraq came clean about its biological weapons, but only just a little. So rather than flat out denying they existed, they were told that the weapons they did have were for defensive military purposes. Hmm. Meanwhile at the UN, delegates put forward proposals for how Iraq could somehow move forwards and start to pay off the vast sums that the UN decided that it had to pay back. The first of the resolutions on this matter was 706. This was a food for oil resolution. Rather than being allowed to sell oil to whoever and decide what to do with the proceeds, probably build himself another palace if Saddam had his way, the UN decided that over a six-month period, Iraq could export $1.6 billion worth of oil, with the revenue being paid to the UN. This money could then only be used for food, medicine, and other essential materials, certainly not weapons. The UN would keep back some of the money to pay for the weapons inspections, and some of it would go to Kuwait. However, the Oil for Food program would not come into force for another three years. The UN also noted how uncooperative the Iraqis were being with the inspectors, and they also passed Resolution 707, stressing the need for the inspectors to have unfettered access to wherever they wanted to go. On September the 21st, 1991, the UNSCOM and IAEA teams found their pay dirt, a cache of files detailing Iraq's hidden nuclear weapons program. Once the Iraqis discovered the inspectors had uncovered the secret documents, they immediately took the documents back. However, the documents stated the location of the program headquarters, and the inspectors went there the next day. They found even more documents, and the Iraqis wouldn't let the inspectors leave the site unless they handed the documents over. This led to a standoff between the inspectors and the Iraqis that lasted for four days. Eventually, the Iraqis relented after the UN threatened action against them. In October 1991, the UN Security Council tried to be firmer with with Iraq, and they passed Resolution 715. This gave approval for joint inspections by UNSCOM and IAEA, demanding that Iraq accept unconditionally the inspections and all other personnel designated by the Special Commission. Iraq responded by calling the resolution unlawful, and they publicly stated that they would not comply. Over the next few months, the inspectors struggled with the Iraqi authorities in their attempts to inspect various sites across the country. On February 18, 1992, the chairman of UNSCOM delivered a report to the UN saying where they were being hindered. The next month, Iraq declared the existence of 89 ballistic missiles and various chemical weapons. 
but it had destroyed them themselves, apparently. This was in violation of Resolution 687, as under it, any weapons destroyed had to be under the supervision of the inspectors so that the destruction could be verified. Otherwise, the Iraqis could just make the destruction up. Oh, yeah, 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 we destroyed all our gear. Hand on heart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, we blew it all up. This, this sounds very much like the helicopter scam again. Mm, a bit. So unsurprisingly, the Iraqi announcement that they had destroyed a bunch of weapons was not enough to placate the inspectors. On March the 25th, the day before Colonel Homer first aired, the IAEA felt confident enough to declare that the Al-Afia nuclear facility, 20 miles southwest of Baghdad, was being used in a covert nuclear weapons program. Under the powers given to them by the UN Security Council, the inspectors ordered that the facility be destroyed. Mauricio Zaferrero, the senior nuclear agency official, said Al-Afia was meant to be a very important tool for the development of a weapon. In April, Iraq reluctantly allowed Al-Afia and the neighbouring Al-Hatin High Explosive Test Establishment to be destroyed. The IAEA heralded the event, stating that even if Iraq later acquired or purchased fissile materials, it would lack a site where they could be fabricated into weapons. So what weapons did Saddam Hussein's Iraq have? Well, in terms of biological weapons, they had access to anthrax, botulinum and clostridium perfringens, the bacteria that causes gas gangrene. And Saddam used to test them on humans. Prisoners were tied to stakes in sealed rooms and shells containing the biological agents were detonated. The prisoners would have died horribly as anthrax causes internal hemorrhaging. As for chemical weapons, they had access to mustard gas and the nerve agents sarin and tarban. These were used in the Iran-Iraq war and against the Kurds during the Al-Anfal campaign, with thousands killed in the Halabja massacre. So as we've gone rather dark, I think that's where I'll leave it. Throughout the rest of the 90s and up to the start of the Iraq war in 2003, Iraqi WMDs were a highly contentious issue. Every now and again, the states would bomb a target or two, often in retaliation to Iraq not cooperating with the inspectors. In fact, on January the 19th, 1993, on George H.W. Bush's last day in office, he ordered a Tomahawk cruise missile attack on the Zarfanaya nuclear fabrication and industrial complex near Baghdad, with a stray missile hitting the Al-Rashid Hotel and killing two civilians. I'll just close on a fun fact about the Al-Rashid Hotel. During the Gulf War, it played host to CNN's news coverage. After the war, they installed a mosaic of President George H.W. Bush. Thing is, they installed it on the floor of a reception, so anyone entering the hotel would have to walk on President Bush's face to do so, which, of course, is a serious insult in Arabic culture. Oh, some shade there to close on. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is where I usually try and uh, tie it into The Simpsons. I'm gonna have to go. Um, gonna have to go for Saddam Hussein here. I, I know he wasn't exactly the uh, the crux of the story, but you know, uh, you, you think uh, Iraq, you think Saddam Hussein. So um, in season twelve, episode three, insane clown Poppy, it's revealed that Saddam Hussein only survived an assassination attempt during the first Gulf War when Krusty distracted the would-be assassin. His reasoning for doing so was that he was out there to perform at USO shows and Saddam jokes were half of his act. In what we can assume is a non-canon appearance, he's also apprehended by Stretch Dude and Clobber Girl in the desperately zeking Xena segment of Season 11, Episode 4, Treehouse of Horror 10. And finally, 
and most pointedly, in season 15, episode 14, The Ziff Who Came to Dinner, Homer finds an issue of Newsweek from 1986 in the attic, showing Uncle Sam and Saddam sharing a Sunday with the headline, Why America Loves Saddam Hussein. Well, it was just odd growing up during this time because Saddam Hussein was the arch villain. It's like whenever you saw Saddam Hussein on the news, it was always boo, Saddam, boo. You also had the Iraq War of 2003, but we're we're some way off that yet. Yeah, yeah. That Iraq War of 2003, if we ever get there, there's a there's a whole story to be told there about rolling news. How suddenly one day I came back from a gig and turned on turned on the TV and we were at war, but I thought I was watching the day to day. Thus was the bombast of the uh, coverage. Uh, and we've never really looked back from that, I don't think. Mm, absolutely. But we've got all of that to come. So for now, don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye.